So we're coming to the end of this discussion of the idea of personified evil within the Western Christian religious tradition. We began with looking at the origins of Satan, and I thought I'd end this series with this episode on a variety of different ways in which Satan still makes his appearance within both popular culture and in other ways within the 20th century and on into the 21st century. I want to give basically three clear examples of Satan in how he's continuing to play a role within cultural discourse. First, I want to talk about the movie Nosferatu as an example of a, the main character being a personified evil figure. Secondly, I want to talk about Robert Johnson and the blues and how the discourse of Satan and ideas of Satan and evil play a role within the blues and then from that there's importance for the history of rock and roll and themes in the history of rock and roll. Thirdly, I want to look at two different conspiracies of the 1970s and 80s. In other words, two different instances where people who believed in the existence of Satan imagined they were finding evidence of Satan's activity. I want to look at the satanic conspiracies relating to Satanism and backmasking. The idea that certain rock and roll artists were deliberately putting in satanic messages in their music if played backwards on a turntable. So those are the three things I thought I'd do in this final episode, just to round things out in a sort of fun way, I guess you could say. So let, first let me just uh, talk about Nosferatu. The movie Nosferatu we watched in the course that is the basis of this podcast. Nosferatu is a 1922 film by the movie maker F.W. Murnau, loosely based on Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. However, the names are changed and a variety of other things are done in order to avoid copyright and legal issues. In the film, Nosferatu, the vampire figure, is presented as personified plague and death. So here we have a personified figure, in this case not personified evil per se, but personified plague and death. He's also seen as the seed of Belial in the narrative uh, that you read. It's a silent film. So in the text that you read, you find out that he is the seed of Belial. We're quite familiar with that figure, Belial, from way back in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He also appears in Paul's letters. This is one of the terms for personified evil that we're very familiar with. And so Nosferatu in the film is presented as though he is the offspring of Belial. In the film, Nosferatu, the main vampire figure, arrives in Bremen in 1838, and this signals the onslaught of a terrible plague that leaves behind the mysterious double mark on the neck. So this arrival of personified plague results in a widespread plague in the film. One has to remember that when this first Dracula film was made, such things were not widely known, at least in visualized form. Sort of Dracula imagery was new, and the horror is sometimes lost because we are now so familiar with Dracula from his many incarnations. This film's presentation of evil came to have an important influence, though, on horror films and on the subsequent portrayal of evil in film generally. So it's quite important for the sort of issues we explored in this course. 
In other words, it illustrates the continuing importance of Satan and evil and the ways in which in Western culture and North American culture in Europe, how we express evil visually within film and how Satan and related issues sometimes play a role in that. Despite the difficulty in getting oneself away from 21st century special effects expectations that we have and into the silent era mode, there were certain points when I myself experienced a feeling of fascination or terror when I watched it, which points to the effectiveness of the movie maker in portraying evil in a frightening, though intriguing, manner that spans across time. Well known is Murnau, the producer's use of shadow. The shadow of the vampire itself possesses the evil powers in the film, which can grab hold of you and control your feelings. As when the shadow of Nosferatu's hand firmly clutches Nina's heart in one scene. As you may know, this idea of the shadow of Nosferatu having power is what is behind the title for the recent behind-the-scenes The Shadow of the Vampire from 2000 with John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. Two other scenes in the film, in the original Nosferatu, are especially worth mentioning for how they affected me in terms of these evil ideas. I found particularly terrifying the slow and magical rising of Nosferatu from the hull of the ship as he comes to Bremen in Germany. Even more evoking of dread is the scene where the starstruck lover, Nina, presumably in a dream state, longingly goes to the window to gaze out into the distance, namely to gaze out towards her other lover, Nosferatu the vampire. She really isn't aware of having this lover, but she's drawn towards Nosferatu the vampire. This growing love of sorts was reflected earlier in the movie in the ambiguity of Nina's cross-stitch of Ich liebe dich, I love you. She stitches, cross-stitches that in the film, which was seemingly directed to her lover Harker, her actual human lover, Harker, who's prominent in the film. But really, we learn to our dismay, it's aimed at the horrible Nosferatu, who has a strange hold over Nina. So there's a double play on love within the film where Nina has her lover Harker, but at the same time, her real lover, so to speak, is the vampire Nosferatu. Nina's longing gaze is juxtaposed with Nosferatu's longing reach for the beautifully necked, as she's called, Nina, as he gazes out of his window at a distance, not in Nina's actual eyesight. Nosferatu's powers are very much at work from afar, but apparently more so as he comes closer. This horrifying love affair ironically ends in Nosferatu's destruction. For the destruction of a vampire we read earlier in the Book of Vampires, this is a book that appears in the film, on screen, the Book of Vampires, and we as watchers of the film get to read text from that book with Nina, we find out that it requires a woman of pure heart to destroy a vampire, namely Nina, to offer herself to the vampire in a night of pleasure. And so there's this irony in the film that Nina needs to offer herself, her pleasures, to Nosferatu in order to destroy him. So that's one example of how evil and personified evil still plays an important role within modern Western culture 
and through Nosferatu film, many of the portrayals of evil and of the vampire figure come to influence subsequent films as well. Now let me talk about another example of how Satan has made his way into popular culture in the West and talk a little bit about Robert Johnson. In this case, obviously, in the blues generally and in Robert Johnson, it's not promoting evil or promoting Satan. The idea is confrontations with evil are uh, expressed within the lyrics of the blues music. And obviously, the idea of being pulled down by Satan or destroyed by Satan is the sort of ominous background to this. Satan is very much a part of popular culture in the West. His story has heavily influenced the portrayal of evil in film, as we just saw with Nosferatu, but you could look at various other examples. But the devil also makes his appearance in our music, including the blues and its offspring, rock and roll. The profound influence of Robert Johnson, a Delta blues or country blues performer of the 1930s, who just made two recording sessions in 1936 and 1937, was not fully felt until the re-release of several recordings in 1961. It's at that point that someone gathered together the various 78s of those recording sessions from 1936 and 37, the race records as they were called back in the 30s, that would have only been exposed to African Americans primarily in that era, would be listening to what were called race records. And it's only in 1961, though, that someone gathered together those 78s of Robert Johnson from the 30s and released it as an LP, as a long play record. And so in 1961, this was released and this came to be listened to and influenced a lot of different artists, including Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin and others who clearly got heavily influenced by Robert Johnson and other blues performers, partly through the release re-release of uh, these songs in 1961. The powers of evil and Satan and hell and related themes make their appearance in a variety of ways in Johnson's songs, some with more frightening effect than others. All of Johnson's music is haunting in some way, even if you don't have the theme of the devil and Satan in it as you may know if you've listened to it before. Let me give you a little bit of background about the country blues and the idea of a deal with Satan at the crossroads. So the country blues, and also sometimes known as the Delta blues, is a type of blues that basically was the key development in the development of blues overall and then came to influence both jazz and rock and roll. And the country blues, the artists we're going to be listening to today is Robert Johnson. He's from the 1930s, these active playing. This is the time period we're dealing with, the mid-30s between the wars. A legend grew up around Robert Johnson and other blues figures. Some blues figures actually claimed this, but in Robert Johnson's case, it was the song I'm going to play to you. might have been the reason why this legend grew up that if you want to be a good guitar player, the best thing to do is go to the crossroads. Because the crossroads is sort of a limbo zone where you have most access to the powers of darkness. Namely, it's at, at the crossroads that you meet Satan. And the idea that some, in, in blues culture, the idea was that you went to the crossroads to make a deal with Satan to sell your soul so that your guitar playing and your blues singing would be the best blues singing and guitar playing that has ever been done. 
Now, there's a long history behind that idea of crossroads being a dangerous place that even goes back to some degree to African culture. But it's more in the early 1900s that we're talking about here that it becomes associated with this idea of musical skill having been acquired through selling your soul to the devil. In a sense, this idea of selling your soul to the devil for something that you'll do best at has a long history before this. But the story goes back into the Middle Ages, and that is the story of a person who strives to have education and be more wise than everyone else. In order to strive that high for wisdom and knowledge, sells their soul to the devil. I'll play three tunes here by Robert Johnson, all of which relate to the concept of evil personified or Satan or hell and have to do with his integration of those ideas within the blues culture that he's a part of. All three of these will illustrate the importance of what we've been studying in this podcast for understanding the legacies of Satan within modern popular culture. The first one is called Me and the Devil Blues, where he's doing this sort of blaming things on Satan in terms of his poor behavior in relationship to a girlfriend. Get a 
The second one I will play is Crossroad Blues that is about his recovery from an encounter with evil and the devil at the crossroads. play is Hellhound on my trail. Oh, 
would need my little sweet rider just to pass the time away. To pass the time away. He's making hot foot bottom around my door, all around my door. He's making hot foot bottom around your daddy door. Less disturbing in ways than the uh, one about <laughs> Robert Johnson beating a woman, which nonetheless expresses Johnson's angst in raw terms drawn from ideas associated with the powers of hell and the hellhound successor of Kerberos. Remember that Kerberos was the guard dog of the underworld in some Greek mythology. And so in, we inherited from that the idea of the hellhound. The third and final example of Satan making an appearance in the 20th century are some conspiracies I want to talk about, especially in the 1970s and 80s. It became very common for the idea within certain segments of American Christianity, particularly what would now be called maybe fundamentalism or American Christian evangelicalism, there was a tendency to look for and find Satan in a variety of different places and to imagine Satan's activity being very prominent in, in different areas. And in this case, we have two different conspiracies I'm going to talk about. And by conspiracy, I mean these were cases where people imagined that there were things happening when, in fact, Satan was in the imagination. We obviously have clear cases of, for example, the Church of Satan existed since the in the 1970s and continued on. So you have actual cases of people worshipping Satan in some particular way and things like that that are real. However, you have on top of that, within American fundamentalist Christianity, a hypervigilance looking for Satan and therefore finding him where he actually is not. And so I'm going to talk about two examples supposed satanic ritual abuse scare of the 1970s and 80s, and secondly, backmasking the idea that there were secret satanic messages within rock and roll music if you played your records backwards. So I'll talk about those two just as a finale to the continuing importance of Satan within cultural practice in the 20th century and 21st century. There was a general decline of Satan in the wake of the 18th century enlightenment and modernism, a decline in him being perceived as a real and imminent danger, that is. I've really spoken about that primarily in using Goethe's Faust as an example, where we see Satan robbed of his power in the imagination of Goethe. 
Satan is a, no longer a dangerous figure, but rather more of a trickster and prankster figure in some of the ways he's portrayed in, in the wake of Goethe. And so Satan's no longer scary, so to speak, in many cases in the modern context. Nonetheless, he still remained alive and well within certain types of Christianity, particularly within the more conservative forms, which do account for a large percentage of modern Christianity. Certainly not all of these conservative Christians subscribed to the conspiratorial theories regarding Satan's dastardly plans to undermine God's activity. Yet there were, from the 1970s to the 1990s, a number of somewhat widespread notions of Satan's evil machinations that are best described as conspiracy theories, two of which I will touch on here. On the one hand were the very frightening claims of Satanic ritual abuse. There was a variety of contextual factors that fed the development of this particular conspiracy theory, including the following. First of all, there were general fears within some Christian circles regarding the many new religious movements, cults from their perspective, which were perceived as deceiving and brainwashing their potential members into joining. One of the results was a somewhat organized anti-cult movement within fundamentalist Christianity, including groups such as the International Cultic Studies Association. These groups, these anti-cult movements that are fighting against what they perceive as dangerous cults, produced substantial amounts of literature. And so the Church of Satan, or the unintentional worship of Satan via other cults generally, could naturally be subsumed within this framework of this satanic ritual abuse. The second factor that helps you understand how the accusations of satanic ritual abuse occurred is the actual existence and public visibility of an actual Church of Satan, the one founded by Magus Anton Zandor LaVey in about 1966, but especially visible in the 1970s. This church claimed to be the continuation of the worldwide worship of Satan that had been going on since ancient times. So once again, as with many of the other things we've looked at, you may have an organization, a group of people claiming to have continuous connection to an ancient past. It doesn't really matter whether really they do have a connection or not. It's obviously with culture. What matters is what people believe. And in this case, they believe they have a heritage that goes back to ancient times. So that's the second main sort of factor behind this particular conspiracy theory that emerged. The third factor I want to talk about is that within certain circles of Christian social workers or therapists, these were people who held the view that there was a satanic conspiracy, and they developed certain methods, namely suggestive interrogation, which resulted in a high number of cases where children and adults reported or confessed to involvement in satanic rituals, often as victims. In some cases, the results of such approaches regarding stories of satanic abuse were published in popularizing books, including Lawrence Pazder's Michelle Remembers of 1980. In essence, this conspiracy theory entailed a worldwide secretive network of Satan worshippers who were systematically exploiting both children and adults to engage in wild and demonic rituals. That's the essence of the conspiracy theory that these uh, fundamentalist Christians, even social workers and therapists developed. One of the handbooks that was written for these therapists, for these Christian therapists who were aiming at finding out the ritual abuse, 
as cited by the historian David Frankfurter in his book on uh, Satan, explains that satanic abuse usually involves, quote, and here's a quotation from the guidebook that was used by Christian therapists. Group cult ceremonies in which children engage in sexual acts with adults and other children, the sacrifice and mutilation of animals, threats related to magical or supernatural powers, ingestion of drugs, magic potions, blood and a human excrement, and distortion of traditional belief systems. So there's sort of the summary of the substance of the supposed ritual abuse that these therapists sought to find. Another such handbook that these Christian therapists used, for those who believed in the conspiracy, states this, such abuse may include the actual or simulated killing or mutilation of an animal, the actual or simulated killing or mutilation of a person, forced ingestion of real or simulated human body fluids, excrement or flesh, and forced sexual activity, end quote. So here you have the sort of language that was being used not only by fundamentalist Christians in general that were taking on this particular conspiracy theory, but even by the social workers and Christian therapists that were instrumental in the actual uh, ritual abuse scare. The fact that this was indeed a conspiracy theory arising out of certain people's worldviews and not reality is now widely recognized. Obviously at the time, not so much. What is particularly interesting is the manner in which stereotypes of the dangerous other, which have a very long history, including the trio of human sacrifice, cannibalism, and sexual perversion, play a key role in this incident as well. Back in Roman times, for instance, the early Christians were accused by outsiders of engaging in precisely these three activities, as were other marginalized or foreign groups in antiquity. So what we have in the 1970s and 80s is evangelical Christians, a particular group of people, defining themselves in relation to other groups, supposed cults or satanic religious movements as they saw them. The Christian group defining themselves by describing the other groups as satanic. This is as old as the history of Satan as you know from this podcast. So similar dynamics of marginalization and demonization were also at work throughout the history of Christianity as a result of this. And we've seen that very clearly, not only in the ancient period, but also with the witch hunts that we talked about that were characteristic of the period from 1400 to 1600 only. The second main conspiracy theory I want to briefly talk about, which is somewhat less frightening or disturbing, you could say, involves the accusations against certain rock and roll bands regarding the, their allegiances with the Prince of Darkness. And here we're talking about Satan, not Ozzy. It's via backmasking that it was thought that these rock and roll artists were doing that, or backward messaging. The idea was that if you play a record backwards, remember records? You could potentially hear an alternate message that, it was believed, was placed there intentionally by the artists in order to serve their Lord and Master, Satan. Now, what initially happened was there were accusations by particular Christian televangelists. The most important one, it seems, it's hard to tell in hindsight which one exactly was most important because in various radio shows and in various television shows, a variety of different televangelists began talking about how satanic rock and roll music was. This was sort of a 
common way of talking about rock and roll music before even the accusation of backmasking occurred. In other words, within conservative Christianity in North America, there was this tendency to think of rock and roll music as evil. Why? Well, because there's drugs and etc. But they began to really emphasize Satan working through rock and roll music. You could say almost like the next step was to say that they might begin to have a theory that there are messages from Satan in this music. Now, initially then, the backmasking, the supposed messages, were in the eye of the beholder, the eye of the hearer. And the hearers were these televangelists and the audiences of the televangelists, conservative fundamentalist Christians in North America. And so they began to believe that there were satanic messages in a variety of different rock and roll songs. Ultimately, it's true that later on, some rock and roll artists actually deliberately put in backmasking messages. But at first, this was not deliberate at all. It's a, at first, it's in the imagination of the conservative Christians. The clearest evidence I have for uh, when this conspiracy theory becomes more widely known is a particular segment of a show from 1982 I managed to find. There was a televangelist show called the Paul and Jan Crouch Show, and the son of Paul Crouch, Paul Jr., went on the show for at least 10 minutes. The segment I saw was 10 minutes long and it seems like it was only part of what the show was, where he goes on to explain that Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, when played backwards, reveals satanic messages. This is the focus of quite a lot of talk in this somewhat well-known televangelist show from the early 1980s. And so it's around 1982, that I think, that therefore the idea of backmasking, the idea that maybe there are satanic messages in rock and roll music, if played backwards, begins to become far more well-known in fundamentalist Christian circles in the United States. And from there, obviously, it becomes far more widespread, the idea that Satan is speaking to our youth through rock and roll music. Obviously, there was already the idea that rock and roll music was satanic that these people had in the first place, but now they had even more sort of direct messages from Satan that could be found in the music to confirm just how evil it all was. So the most famous one then is Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, partly because I think of this specific show, the Paul and John Crouch show and its dissemination of the idea that Satan gets referred to secretly in this song backwards. Now it's in a certain segment of the song only that they focus. It's on the section of the song that begins around the four minute and seven second mark, if you want to find it. Going forwards, in other words, the normal way, listening to Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, if you remember those slow dances, back in high school, for those of you old enough to, to, to be at that segment. The words going forward in this section around the four minute mark are these. If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Now, interestingly, if you pay attention to the actual words of the song, 
in the very segment that is claimed to be satanic. Interestingly enough, the song is about take, making a moral choice between two paths and going on the right road. So there's a bit of a morality to the song in the first place. Anyhow, though, if you're thinking that rock and roll is evil to begin with, and if, like the Paul and Jan Crouch show, you're looking for the messages that might be there backwards, here is what you get if you play it backwards. Here's to my sweet Satan, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is fake, Satan. He'll give those with him 666. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer, sad Satan. So that is the lyric that on the Paul and John Crouch show was put forward as the satanic message when played backwards. And so there is the conspiratorial lyrics, if you want to call it. Let me play for you now the segment forwards and the segment backwards. Now, the lyrics they have here are, again, in the eye of the beholder, or better, ear of the listener, and are not really there. However, if you play any music backwards, you get the sound of Satan all over the place. If you play Amy Grant, a Christian singer, backwards, you will get Satan going backwards. And so it's, uh, it becomes quite silly when you realize that. But nonetheless, this was a, uh, a conspiracy theory that was widely believed by many American fundamentalist Christians. I'm not sure how widespread it still is, but it could be uh, still held by some people. Here then is the segment of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven forward, and then the same segment backwards. You see if you can find Satan. Oh, my God. 